I mentioned earlier that uh, so many of us, no doubt, are uh, burdened for our nation right now, and the election next week, week from Tuesday, uh, it just presses that, I think, reality upon us, and so there are many things that we can do. Uh, we can pray, and uh, we can vote, and we want to do both of those things, but this Wednesday at 6.30, uh, I'm going to lead an online prayer meeting on our Facebook Live, uh, the, the church's Facebook Live uh, media page. And if you would like to join and to pray, please do. 6.30 Wednesday, we'll go maybe about a half hour in that prayer meeting, and uh, I'd love to have you join us for that. Well, it's probably been many years since most of us read what I think is required reading in most high schools. A, uh, uh, an essay in, uh, by uh, Edgar Allan Poe entitled Telltale Heart. Do you remember Telltale Heart? If not, let me tell you the story of Telltale Heart. There was this guy who lived with this other guy, and the other guy had a, an eye that bothered the first guy. He looked at him funny. And over time, that eye get to such a point where this guy decided that he was going to murder the guy with the, with the bad eye. I mean, this is very uplifting uh, sort of <laughs> stuff. And so he did. He murdered him, and he uh, buried the body under the floorboards in the, in the bedroom. Well, uh, the story goes that this guy swore that he could, he could still hear the heartbeat of the dead guy under the floorboards. And it got louder, and it got louder, and it got louder, and it got louder. And finally, it got so loud, it drove him crazy. He called the cops, and he confessed to the murder. What a great story for our young people to be reading, don't you think? <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe, Tell Tale Heart. Why do we have kids read this? I don't know, but I had to read it. I'm assuming maybe other people did, but by the looks on most of your faces, you were asleep during that part of English class. Uh, what was it, though, about that heartbeat that drove the guy crazy as it got louder and louder and louder? And you're supposed to realize that it wasn't the man's dead heart that was getting louder and louder. It was his own heart that was beating louder and louder as he felt guilty for what he had done, the crime that he had committed. And what Poe calls the telltale heart, the Bible calls the conscience. The conscience. Conscience in Romans 14, and if you're just joining today, first time visiting, we've been preaching through Romans coming on three years. We're a few months away from three years. We're in chapter 14. And we've been seeing in chapter 14 that conscience is actually front and center in this explanation that Paul gives of how Christians within a church can view disputable matters differently and that actually those disputable matters can for one person even be wrong and for another person can be okay. A reminder, we're talking about non-essential matters here. We're not talking about moral matters that the Bible makes clear or that an applied principle of the Bible makes clear. We're talking about uh, disputable, non-essential matters. I talked to Pastor Gary Butler, who's been a pastor for 50 years. I asked him uh, if, if, you know, has anything, have those things changed over time? 
And he said they've changed dramatically from when he started what Christians were disputing about to what today in our culture Christians dispute about. And we see in this that these things change over time. But what Romans 14 has been urging us as a church is to apply love and grace to the areas that we don't see exactly the same, especially lifestyle choices. We're not to be judgmental. We're not to be condescending. We're not to be divisive. How are we to do that? By keeping the main things the main things, or what he says in Romans 14, 17, the essential things. Keep those things the essential things and remain unified over those things, and don't let a minor thing become a major thing and a divisive thing in the church. Why? Because good people can disagree on some of these things and still love each other. Now that isn't our culture right now. If we disagree on anything, we hate each other. But in the church, we're to be countercultural, where we are unified in love around Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus, the essentials of the gospel. So today I want to drill down on the conscience. Have you ever had a clear teaching about the conscience? I'm gonna guess perhaps not. But it is a major theme in Romans 14, and it really is a major part of all of our lives. In the day-to-day of life, we all live with a conscience. And in Romans 14, Paul is, he describes those that have an oversensitive or an extra-scrupulous conscience as the weak in faith. And he describes those who are more mature in these areas as the strong in faith. They are less bothered by some of these convictions. But these two groups see things differently. And we look at this, we think, well, how can both of them be okay? Well, look at chapter 14, verse 14. It says this, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, we talked about this last week, ceremonial unclean. This harkens back from the Old Testament. We might even put in there that, that nothing in these categories is sin in itself. But it is unclean or it is sin for anyone who thinks that it is sin or thinks that it is unclean. He says the same thing in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. He's talking here about eating, uh, eating, eating uh, pork for the Jewish Christians. They're condemned if they eat because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now you might say, wait a second, I didn't hear the word conscience here at all. And indeed you're right. The actual word conscience isn't here in chapter 14. It's all over in the Bible. It's used twice in Acts, 20 times in Paul's letters, five in Hebrews, and three times in 1 Peter. So what Paul is doing here without using the word is describing how the conscience functions. So what is our, our conscience? Our conscience is the internal moral compass that holds us to account for the decisions and directions of our lives. Let's leave that up there for a moment if we can, in case you're taking notes, because that's a pretty good definition. Um, it is that moral compass inside It holds us accountable. It's like a watchman inside of us that informs us when we have done something that, right or wrong, we think is wrong. Now, Paul talks about conscience in chapter 2, verse 15. He says this, 
They show that they here are unbelievers. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now we were in chapter two, I don't know, 100 years ago, so maybe you don't remember. But what we saw there is that unbelievers are also made in the image of God and that an aspect of what God did when he created us that makes us different than the animals is we have a moral awareness. There is something inside of us that says, that's right, that's wrong, and that is tied to the biblical concept of conscience. So it's rooted in in the image bearing that we have as Christians God placed this within us. Unbelievers still have a conscience. Now our understanding, our moral understanding, may be wrong because conscience is not infallible, okay? As in the case of the weaker brother. Paul basically says the weaker brother, his position, his conscience isn't actually right regarding Sabbaths and eating vegetables or pork or wine drinking, all three of those mentioned in chapter 14. Yet the conscience holds us to the inward standard that we think is right or wrong. And I'm going to guess as I talk about this, we all are aware of that voice inside of us, right? Here in the room, nod your head just to encourage your pastor, okay? Because I think we all, right, and if you're not nodding your head right now, your conscience is telling you that you should be nodding your head, okay? (laughs) It's the voice inside that tells you, uh, 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 uh. And from that flows a sense of guilt, like I've done something wrong. I feel guilty for what I have done or what I should have done and I didn't. When we do this, it's the telltale heart. The heart begins to beat inside. Here's a couple great uh, other uh, guys talking about conscience. Uh, George Marsden, conscience tells people when they are out of harmony with their own best judgments or acting inconsistently with what they would approve in others. J.I. Packer, an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do, forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, and makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our conscience. And so the, our conscience, this is a good thing, okay? This is, a, conscience is our friend. It's an ally within us that is, that is uh, you know, urging us to live according to the moral will of God. It's a good thing, even if it's not always an accurate thing. And we're gonna get into that here, because that's really what Romans 14 is about. You have, you have a, an, an, an inaccurate conscience, in the case of the weaker uh, brother, who is condemned, the conscience is condemning them in areas that the strong in faith don't feel guilt. Now, I have, uh, I've told you before, and I'm gonna get into this a little bit, I grew up in a, in a uh, conservative Christian background. And out of that, I think I, I came out of that with a particularly, I would say, I'm, I tend to be on the more sensitive side with my conscience. And much of what I'm sharing with you today flows out of my own life sort of experience of 
I don't know, violating my conscience, wondering if it was right, trying to, you know, sort my way through these things. I'm actually excited about the message today because it's been, these are things that have been so helpful to me. I'm sharing them with you. I hope it's a blessing uh, to, to all of you. And one of the things that has been a, a major help to me is uh, to realize that Christian liberty issues of Romans 14 are not moral issues per se. These are not clear moral standards in Scripture. It applies to disputable matters. So let me make that very clear, okay? Lest you take Romans 14 and apply it to your desire to rob the bank this week or something like that. No, no. In fact, I once talked with a woman in our church, this is years ago when I was uh, talking similarly on these subjects, and she came up to me and she said this. She said, I'm so glad that you've been teaching on the Christian liberty stuff. I have a Christian friend who is excited she has recently been going into hotels that offer free breakfast to, breakfast to their guests. She's not a guest, but she walks in, eats, and leaves. She thinks it's great, and she thinks it's a Christian liberty issue. Okay, that's not Christian liberty, that's stealing, okay? There's one of the Ten Commandments about that. You don't apply this to that. And that's an important distinction to make lest you go out and do similarly uh, stupid things like that. Christian liberty issues are gray areas. Areas that the Bible doesn't speak to clearly. There's no clear directive. And we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, right? If it's something we needed to know, God told us in the Bible. And if he didn't tell us in the Bible, it apparently isn't that big of a deal. Not, not that important to him. But in spite of that, the reality in the church, and it's great to know that 2,000 years ago, people were just like people are today, you have varying opinions and backgrounds and experiences and things that have shaped us to where we look at things differently in these gray areas. And years ago, I read it. It's this, this is an old book by Joe Aldridge called Lifestyle Evangelism. And one of the chapters in that book has been hugely helpful to me. I'd like to summarize it for you here because he talks about that in reality you have not just the weaker brother and the stronger, strong in faith brother, but there's actually four kinds of Christians. There is, first of all, what he calls the professional weaker brother. This is the person who, they have a conviction about something that's in a disputable area. It is not to be questioned, and everybody needs to live by that standard. Okay? They are the professional weak. These, this is the, the warrior on that personal conviction type person. Then you have the susceptible weaker brother. This is the person who, they're, they're not, they're not the, the warrior, but they're not sure about it. They're like, they're, they're, they don't have clearance in their conscience, but they think maybe they're not right. They look at the mature Christian participating and they feel maybe a little envy, but something inside is saying, don't do it. They're the susceptible weaker brother. Then you have the non-participating mature brother. This is the godly Christian who their conscience doesn't bother them in a particular area, but they just choose not to participate in it for any number of reasons. And then finally, you have the participating mature brother. This is the person, they're free to participate in it by conscience, and they do, okay? Now, I'm gonna break this down a little bit uh, uh, here because I think this is very helpful in what Paul is getting at in Romans 14. So both of the weaker faith categories, they don't participate, but they don't participate for different reasons. 
The professional weaker brother, he knows it's wrong. He's going to argue that it's wrong. He's going to basically weaponize his conviction on this and apply it to the entire church. And if anybody's involved in this particular thing, then I'm going to the elders and the pastors and we need to kick them out of the church. No good Christian would be a part of that or do that sort of thing. It's wrong for everybody. Again, the susceptible weaker brother. Here's the professional uh, weaker brother, and it sort of rings true in their conscience, but they're not as convinced as the other guy, and they kind of, in their heart, they sort of would like to be involved in that area of freedom, but their conscience doesn't let them do it. And so they typically take the better safe than sorry approach, and they don't participate. And again, summarizing, on the stronger side, you have two uh, individuals that you could misunderstand who they actually are. Because the stronger faith, the non-participating, looks like he's one of the weaker faith brothers uh, because he doesn't participate. But in reality, he has freedom to do so. His conscience doesn't condemn him for doing it, but he just chooses not to do it. They don't judge those who participate. On the outside, they look like they're the susceptible weaker brother, but they're not. So uh, I'm gonna give you a few examples of this. Um, and in, the care, in these areas of disputable things, uh, there, there are things that I personally don't participate in simply because I'm a pastor, okay? I'm a pastor. I pastor all these people, and I know in the church there's all kinds of varying opinions on these things. I've got everything from the participating stronger brother all the way to the professional warrior weaker brother and everything in between. And so I want to encourage, I don't want to discourage anyone, and so I just view a lot of some of these things, and I go, I'm, you know, I don't think it's wrong, but because of my position, I'm not going to participate in it, okay? Further, with social media as it is, I know that if I did participate in some of these things, within three seconds of doing so, somebody would be snapping a photo and posting it on social media, and then the professional weaker brother would see it and would be calling for my dismissal from my position in the church because no good pastor would be involved in such a thing. Professional weaker brothers love social media because they can su uh, suggest hypocrisy. Now, here's the thing. Am I free in Christ to do said thing? Yes. But I choose not to. So I am the non-participating weaker brother. Can I do some of these things? Uh, yes. If, I'm, if I can do some things with my wife, for example, biblically, I certainly can dance with her. Right? Just to show you the sort of irrationality of some of these kind of principles that we, that we do. I thought maybe that would be funny. Nobody said anything. It's fine. Okay? <laughs> I'll give you another example. You know, when I came to Bethel in 1997, it was the expectation that every Sunday I would preach with a coat and tie on. And for years, I preached every Sunday with a, with a coat and tie. I remember we had a deacon's meeting and one of the subjects was whether I had to wear a tie or not when I preached. It was a big thing we talked about. Can I just tell you, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. Do you know how hard it is to talk with a noose around your neck? Right? But what do I say that? Because it's just one example of how things change over time. And some of these kind of principles that we're ready to go to war over end up showing that they don't maybe matter that much. You know, when I go to preach at another church, I'll ask them, what version of the Bible do you want me to use? Now, do I have one or two that I like more than another? Yeah. Am I going to die on that hill? No. 
I'll use whatever version, I mean, as long as it's not, you know, the Mormon Bible or something, I'm going to, you know, I'll use whatever version you want me to use. If it's a faithful version, how, what do you, how do you want me to dress? What do you want me to do? I want to flex to whatever the culture of that church is. Does it mean I have a conviction on those things? No, but I'm, I'm trying to do what's best for the church. And again, finally, then you have the participating stronger brother. And hopefully this person, if this is you, you don't think you're more godly because you've got freedom in a particular area. Look at me, I have freedom. That's another bondage, okay? But you, maybe you do have freedom and you enjoy it God's way for his glory and that's a wonderful thing. Praise God for freedom in Christ, amen? Okay, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, the Bible says. So what is Romans 14 then in light of that paradigm? Romans 14 is written to the participating mature brother regarding the susceptible weaker brother. It's not the professional weaker brother. He would never be convinced to do something against his conscience, but he'll go to war over it, okay? It is the susceptible weaker brother whose conscience does not give him the green light, but by being a participating stronger brother, I might... Uh, exert pressure on the susceptible weaker brother to do something that for him would be sin because his conscience doesn't give him the green light. And what Paul writes here is, hey, mature Christian brother, don't do that. Don't destroy the faith or the, the, the life of your susceptible weaker brother. Why? Because whatever freedom you're talking about, it's not worth that, right? It's not worth it. Christ died for this, the faith of this brother or sister. So don't destroy him for the sake of your little freedom that you want to participate in. Now let me give you another example, okay? I think examples, a lot of examples here today. Let me give you another example, and this is from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 are entirely written on this same subject. Now the issue was slightly different in Corinth because in Corinth you had uh, the temple Aphrodite. And you can, you can go online and look at the, this, there was this huge temple. It was a sexually immoral uh, pagan worship at that temple. And so there were Christians in the Corinthian church who thought that any meat, and they would offer sacrifices, meat uh, at that temple, and then they would take it down to the market and they would sell it. And there were Christians in the church who thought, I can't eat meat that at one time was offered in worship to a pagan god in the temple. No good Christian would do that. And then there were other Christians who were like, hey, the gods aren't anything. Why does it matter? And the, and the meat's discounted. Okay? So let's buy it cheap if it's already been, you know, so the, the, the Dutch Christians were on board with that idea. And so there was this huge debate within the Corinthian church about whether you could eat meat that was offered at the, at the temple or not. So imagine with me the foyer after the service in the Corinthian church. You have a little huddle of, of uh, stronger faith Christians, and they're talking loudly. Frank, wasn't that steak at the Temple Steakhouse awesome last night? Oh, that was some shindig we were at. Are you and Lois going this Friday? I hope to see you there. Meanwhile, you have a little huddle on the other side of the foyer, and these are now the professional weaker brother. They've gathered, and they're overhearing what the others are saying. Look at them reveling in their idle meat eating. The pastor needs to do something about this. And then one of the wives says, yeah, 
They, they, they weren't raised right, obviously, if they're eating that kind of meat. And I just know I'm not letting my kids play with their kids because they might serve at lunch uh, hot dogs that were sacrificed at the, at the temple and we're not going to give little Jimmy those sorts of things. And standing next to them is the person that Paul is actually writing Romans 14 about, which is the susceptible weaker brother. Okay, he's not the hardcore judgmental professional weaker brother. He's not a strong in faith person either. He admires them, he'd like to go to the steakhouse, but his conscience grips him at the thought of eating idle meat. It doesn't feel right. And he sits there and he goes, hmm, what should I do? That's Romans 14. How do we handle that in the church? And again, these cultural things will come and go. The gray areas are different here than they are in other places of America or even the world. Uh, East Coast Christianity is different than West Coast uh, Christianity. You know, Midwest is different. I mean, if the, I remember, I'm going to talk about when I went to Phoenix, but I remember when I moved to Phoenix uh, to go to seminary, I was astonished at the freedom of the Christians there in, uh, in pagan Phoenix, Arizona. So different than my Midwest upbringing. You go to a church in Europe, it's going to have different gray areas than the, than the church in Africa, etc. Real spirituality is much deeper than these liberty choices in the gray areas. Let me say it clearly. Real godliness gets past the I do or the I don't to what would be best for my brother or sister. What would be best for the unity of the church? What would be best for the glory of God? That's the mature place that we all want to get to and then adapt to it. But there lingers this kind of difficult question because Paul says that if I don't have clearance in my conscience to do something, it's wrong for me. Even if somebody else who has does the same thing, it's not necessarily wrong for them. That seems like a moral dualism. Like, how can this be? Let's talk about what makes the difference. Again, look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Again, verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now this, this again, can sound confusing. I think of maybe young people here who are, you know, their, their minds are spinning on how can something be wrong for me and right for somebody else? And we need to realize it is not the activity itself that is the issue. It is whether or not inside my conscience, inside my heart, am I acting according to what I believe is pleasing to God or not. That's the issue. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And faith here is the quality of assurance and confidence that I have inside that something is actually according to God's will. And if I don't think it is, or I'm not sure that it is, and I do it anyway, I have violated my conscience. And for me, it is sin. As Mark Dever uh, writes it, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing 
wrong. That's well said. Now, I'm going to share a story here from my past, and I, I do so with some hesitation, honestly, because for some of you, I think this is going to sound uh, silly, and I'm worried that I'm going to be uh, diminished in your eyes, probably. Uh, and, and for some of you, maybe, maybe you are more like my past, and I, I certainly don't want to, by my story, spur you to do something against your conscience, which would violate Romans 14 itself. So at a little bit of risk, I'm going to share with you a story from my life. So many of you know, I grew up uh, in, in a conservative branch of uh, the Midwest Christian church. And it was a kind of church where there were a lot of convictions about a lot of things. And therefore, there were a lot of kind of rules said or unsaid in the church that we followed, uh, I would say with, with sincerity. And one of those was that good Christians don't go to the movie theater. That's how, that's how I, I was raised. And I, I'm the oldest of four, conscientious oldest uh, son, wanting to please mom and dad, son. And so that was the way it was. And so therefore, I, I didn't go. I didn't sneak around and go. I just, I didn't go. Well, then I went to college. I went to a Christian college, and at this college, you had to sign, my memory is you had to sign a lifestyle statement that had a whole bunch of things that you wouldn't do. One of them was you wouldn't attend a movie theater, and so I put my name on that. So for four years, I had basically vowed that I wouldn't do it, and, and so I didn't. So I arrive at the age of 22. I have never in my life been to a movie theater. I moved to Phoenix, Arizona to go to seminary. And as I said earlier, you know, pagan Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you know, the wild, wild west out there. Uh, but I, I moved out there. It was, in some ways, it was kind of like the first time I was really on my own, on my own. And uh, I was ready to kind of spread my wings. I'd headed west, you know. I was like, okay, I'm my, I'm my own man now. I can kind of, you know, do what I want. Do what I think is, is, is right and wrong. And while I was living there, there was a Christian movie. This is going to even add to the perhaps, uh, I don't know, silliness to some of you. But there was a Christian movie. So we're not talking about some R-rated movie. We're talking about a Christian movie, the kind we probably would show our third graders in Sunday school, that came out. And it was a story. I think it was a true story. And I really wanted to see it. But I had never been to a movie theater before. And I, I, so I kind of struggled with the decision, like, should I go or shouldn't I? Like, I'm kind of crossing a line here that I've never done before, but it is a Christian movie. I mean, if there was ever an okay movie to go see, it would be a Christian movie in the, in the movie theater. But I honestly struggled with it. So I finally decided, you know what? I'm going to go. In spite of the turmoil I had inside, I said, I'm going to do it. I'm my own man now. And so I went to that, to that movie. And I remember sitting there as the movie was playing, I felt so guilty. I was miserable. In fact, my memory is I got up before it was done and I left. I was not enjoying the experience at all. Now, I'm in seminary. Like, I got verses. I got Greek. You know, I can apply to it. I know in my mind that what I was doing was not wrong. But my conscience was not aligned with my mind. And so I, I look at that, and I, I would say that that was sin for me. 
Okay, again, I, I know some of you, that sounds silly right now, where culture is right at this time, but my conscience was saying that I was guilty for going. Now, I'm going to continue the story a little bit. Uh, so, years later, I actually would come to enjoy the experience of going to a movie theater. But then I came to Northwest Indiana to be the senior pastor at Bethel Church. And I quickly discovered there were a number of people within the church who basically were like my background and the way that I grew up, and they viewed that as being sort of off limits for what a good Christian would do, and certainly the pastor of the church. And so for years, I didn't go to a, a movie theater, certainly not in our area. I think I did was on vacation or something, but I wouldn't go to a movie theater in our in our area simply because I knew that that would be for some percentage of the church a really kind of big deal. And it just wasn't worth it. So now for a different reason, I'm not going to the movie theater. I had gone from being a susceptible weaker brother in Phoenix, Arizona, to a participating stronger brother in Indianapolis, Indiana, to a non-participating stronger brother in Northwest Indiana. My conscience was my guide. And then it transitioned to whatever would be best for the church. Because I, I love the church, and I, there's no movie worth dividing this church over. I don't care if it was Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but again, culture changes. And certainly our church has changed in this and many other ways. And we've got to realize that different Christian cultures have different consciences about things. I'm told that there was an international missions conference that was held. So there were missionaries from all over the world that came together, and there was a huge brouhaha that broke out between the European missionaries and the American missionaries. The American missionaries were appalled at how much alcohol the European missionaries drank, and the European missionaries were appalled that the Americans would drink soda pop because they said, this is so terrible for your body. Why would you steward your body that way? And they were offended that they would drink soda pop as an example of how different these things can be. And what we see in this, friends, is that so many of the assumptions that we make in these areas are not so much tied to a verse, chapter and verse of Scripture as to the culture that we grew up in, the home that we grew up in, the convictions of our parents or grandparents, some key person in our life that then shapes our conscience inside. Next, while we shouldn't violate our conscience, here's the good news. We can change our conscience. Did you know that? We can change our conscience. And I would urge all of us to do so. Why? Because we should all want to be mature. The goal here is not immaturity. The goal here is not the professional weaker brother that weaponizes and gets mad at everybody and judges everybody who doesn't live by their conviction even though they don't have a verse for it. We don't want that. We all want to be, we want to be mature. We want to be Christ-like. We want to grow and change. And part of the transformation of growing into the likeness of Christ is the shedding of unbiblical, conscientious things that, that uh, are in us. And our consciences can change. That is the great news. And it should be desired by all of us. 
Andy Nasali wrote a great book on conscience I'd recommend it if you're interested. But in it he says this. This means that the second principle, obey conscience, has one critical limitation. If God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through his word that your conscience is registering a mistaken moral judgment, and if you believe that he wants to adjust your conscience to better match his will, your conscience must bend to God. If your conscience is so sacrosanct that it's off limits even to God, that is idolatry. And that should sting a little bit the professional weaker brother <laughs> who maybe is listening right now. Your conscience supersedes even the word of God. That is idolatry. And that is not biblical Christianity. So don't disobey your conscience. Okay, hear that clearly. Don't disobey it, but also don't worship it. Don't bow down to your conscience. That conscience inside of you is not the voice of God. It is broken, but it can be redeemed and it can be changed. And how do we do so? And here is where the word of God plays such a, a critical role. When I have a conscientious thing in my heart, I need to compare what it's telling me to what God's word tells me. Because my conscience is not infallible, but the Bible is infallible. My conscience is not totally sufficient, but the Bible is everything that is needed for life and godliness. And so if it's not in the Bible, and if it's not a faithful application, not everything is, you know, you say, well, can I play video games? Give me a verse for that, Pastor Steve. I'm like, there's not a verse for that, but we have principles that we apply. If there is not a, a direct principle that is applied from a verse in Scripture, well, then this probably is a category that isn't that big a deal to God. And therefore, there is room for uh, transformation. If I feel guilty over something that God says is okay, who's right? Who's right? And why do I feel that way? And so I would encourage you to study the Bible on whatever thing it is that you're sort of struggling with. What does the Bible say? Study it, meditate on it, pray over it, ask God to conform, you know, God, I don't want you to conform to what my conscience says. I want my conscience to conform to what you say. Help me to do so. And you know what? If your conscience never changes, don't do whatever thing you're talking about. Don't violate your conscience. Better, though, is to conform it to what God says is right and wrong. The Bible is our final authority, okay? Not my conscience. It is the Word of God. And therefore, I would encourage you to return to key doctrines like the authority of God's word and the inspiration of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word. These are all ways that our conscience can rest in what God has said and to find a kind of comfort in maybe participating in a freedom because I really truly am trusting that what God has said is actually right and wrong. Again, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I would encourage you to meditate on that truth. As the Puritans used to say, preach, preach that truth to yourself. Your conscience says something. Say, conscience? Now here's what the God's word says. And what you're telling me isn't true, even though it feels true to me inside, but this is what God's word says. And you have these little going on inside. But hopefully the Bible wins <laughs> in the end. That's what we want. I would also encourage us to repent of judgmental attitudes towards other people. 
in non-essential areas. And I think we all know that probably. You, you're, you know, you're on social media and you see so-and-so doing such and such, and you're like, oh, and they think they're all godly. Okay, who's really at fault in that moment? It's my judgmental heart, right? We need to repent of those judgmental attitudes. And finally, wait for clearance. Wait for clearance of your conscience in the area. Don't violate your conscience. The last thing I want anybody here, I don't want any susceptible weaker brother in any particular area hearing this message and going, I'm just gonna grit my teeth and I'm gonna do what the Bible says and I don't care what my conscience says. No, that's not what Paul says. You're gonna be like me, the miserable guy in the movie theater watching the Christian movie. It will tell you you are guilty. Wait until you get that green light inside. Pray and ask God for wisdom and wait for his uh, change of your conscience. And finally, whether you're weak or strong in faith in these areas, whether you're participating or not, remember the main goal of Romans 14. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Amen. Amen. Amen.